Please turn in your Bibles to Romans 5, beginning with verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For we have been united with him in a death like his we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. As you can see there in your bulletin, our hope this morning is that we would see that by grace, Jesus grants eternal life in heaven. And when he does so, he grants victory over sin so that we would actually walk in victory over that sin. And this is really commonplace in Scripture. This is the reality of Christianity. And so I'm going to plead with you from the beginning, as you might expect, that in the moment, uh, if we come across something in Scripture that violates your personal theology, that violates your worldview, that really challenges what you believe, especially insofar as it is dependent upon your experience, I'm going to challenge you now and I'll challenge you throughout in this short opportunity we have together this morning to submit yourself to the Word of God. There's nothing better for me in my efforts to faithfully proclaim the truth of the Word of God, to do faithful exposition, having the tone been established by three new Christians who understand the power of the gospel. They understand what it's like to live under a false conversion. They understand what it's like to be entrapped in sin, caught in sin, like the Proverbs in Proverbs 5 speaks of the one who is entangled in the cords of his sin. That makes it easy for me in a sense, because you've heard these living 
testimonies. I know most of you pretty well. You know me pretty well. And we can all attest to the fact that there was a, a time in our lives, and I want to I caution you if you can't attest to this. We can all attest to the fact that there was a time in our lives where we now look back and realize we were falsely converted, not truly converted. And especially as we've been in the book of John these last months, we see more and more that the more clearly and strongly Jesus communicates what it really means to be a disciple of him as opposed to one of the disciples that walked away, that it's very easy to be that person who in a literal sense follows Christ but does not know Christ. Jesus called those who walked away and abandoned him disciples. That's what they were. They weren't disciples of Christ. They were false disciples of Christ. They were false converts. So, of course, our hope and our efforts as we look at the Word of God is to ensure that we understand what a false convert is. You know, we've said it many times. Those who are deceived don't know that they're deceived. Otherwise, they wouldn't be deceived. That was you. That was me. I lived that way for a number of years. I don't know how many, but I remember when the Lord really awakened my soul. I remember when the Lord struck me with the reality that a double life, a one that appears to be walking in the light while being committed to walking in the darkness, is not only not congruous with biblical Christianity, it's impossible. It's completely foreign to biblical faith. As we look at this this morning, again, my, my hope, as I've said, and it's there in your bulletin in, in what we call the so that statement, is that you would understand that when Jesus grants someone eternal life, he grants victory over sin. He gives new life to that person, not just a ticket to heaven. When eternal life has been granted, there are those among the hypergrace, what we call the hypergrace mindset that say, well, you know, you're saved by grace, therefore all your sins are forgiven. And we would agree, right? We fully agree with that. But then they would go on to say that in your repetition of an uninterrupted practice of sin, don't be concerned because Christ's death covers that sin. And we would say absolutely not in the words of Paul the Apostle. And we'll see that in clarity in this passage of Scripture this morning. By way of this text, I want you to understand the first point. By grace, Jesus grants eternal life. You see, part of the problem is that for so many folks, their conversion, their, if I can call it this, their brand of Christianity, their faith is not rooted in grace. What do we mean by that? We simply mean that it's completely accomplished exclusively accomplished by Christ in his death and in his resurrection. That's what we mean when we say that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's what we mean by that. Rick did a tremendous job. If you haven't listened to Rick's message from last Sunday, you, I strongly encourage you to, to listen to it. He did a tremendous job of explaining this, that unless one understands the severity of his true condition, what we would call his ontology, the essence of who he is at his core. Unless he understands that, particularly as Carly explained it in her baptism testimony this morning, unless he understands that, he has no interest 
in the saving gospel. He only needs a milk toast gospel, one that might be defined as choosing Jesus. That's all he needs. I just add him to my life. That's all he needs in his mind because he doesn't understand his true condition. And listen, it's an axiomatic reality that the reason he doesn't understand his true condition is because of his true condition. Makes sense. But man, will he ever fight tooth and nail to persuade you to believe that he really does understand his true condition and that his true condition is not described by those things you heard in the baptism waters this morning. Totally depraved. Dead in trespasses and sins. Conceived in sin. Gone astray from the womb. He doesn't believe that about himself. He might acquiesce to it verbally, but he really won't do it. And here's how you know. If this is you, if this is someone else you know, this is certainly me in the past. This is how you know that about this person. They confess sin in generalities. Oh, yeah, I'm a sinner. Okay, um, it would appear to me that you have a pattern in this particular area. No, 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 you got that all wrong. Well, then what are your, what are your besetting sins? What are those sins that others might say you seem to have a proclivity for or at least did in the past? What are those things that most tempt you? Well, I'm, you know, I'm like everybody else. I'm a wretched sinner. I'm just terrible. Okay, a little more detail, if you will. Well, I'm like what the Bible says. You know, I need Jesus. See, that's a Roman Catholic gospel. That's all you need if you don't understand the depths of your condition. Let's look at that condition. Point number one, by grace, Jesus grants eternal life. Let's look at those to whom he grants it. And again, I think you heard it in all three testimonies this morning. He grants that to those who repent of their sins. Watch this, verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men. Now stop there. That ought to be enough, beloved. That ought to be enough for you and me and everyone who is willing to ascribe to and trust in the Scripture to say, whoa. Adam's sin led to my condemnation. And some would say that's not fair. Paul makes it clear that it is fair back in verse 12 by saying, we sinned in Adam. Okay? So you and I are equally culpable. Whatever Adam did, it was not worse than what you and I have done. So we've brought condemnation upon ourselves. But that one trespass, what one trespass? The first Adam. His sin led to the inheritance of of the sinful condition and the eternal condemnation. And yet you and I are still at fault. Further in verse 18, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Now, lest you think that all always means every single person in the whole world, be careful. You've just ascribed to what's called universalism if you think that somehow Jesus' death justified every single person in the whole world. Clearly, in the context of the book of Romans, he's speaking about those who are regenerate or who will be regenerate. Christ justified all men who are justified. No one else justifies them. They don't justify themselves. It's only Christ and his work that justifies. Verse 19, 
For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. And this is the exclusive truth upon which we rest when it comes to the forgiveness of sins. I mean, think of it. How many times have you sinned horrifically, maybe even publicly, and in doing so, you regret it so deeply? And then your greater effort, while you truly are sad, you know, genuinely sorry for what you've done, your greater effort is to communicate to that person just how bad you feel. Now, that's a good thing to do. You want that person to know that you're genuinely experiencing godly sorrow for your sins. But that ought not to be your, your greater focus. Your greater, really the greatest focus ought to be what Christ accomplished. He, in fact, accomplished your forgiveness and therefore your full rejoicing. And so you can rejoice hand in hand with that person against whom you've sinned. Isn't that great? I mean, there's a process, right? You know, there's that need to have a discussion, maybe a few discussions. And eventually you get to the place where you can look each other in the eye and say, man, we're kind of a mess, aren't we? Praise God that Jesus is not. And in heaven, we will worship him in perfection. But in the meantime, we need this process of acknowledging that it is the one by whom the many will be made righteous. It's not you feeling excessively bad for what you've done. That's not the foundation. That's certainly a result of your understanding of the severity of your sin. But the foundation of all reconciliation and all joy is that Christ has made us righteous. He's granted us what we call imputed righteousness. Not the infused righteousness of the false church where somehow God takes righteousness and sort of wiggles it into your DNA. That's not reality. If you know you, you know that's not true about you. You know that you need to rest and trust in the righteousness of Christ. Imputed righteousness. That God holds us to an account that's filled with his works. Christ's works. You are rewarded for what he has done. He is punished for what you have done. And not only for what you've done, but for the condition that led to it. See, that's imputed sin and imputed righteousness. God declares the sinless one to be culpable. And he turns his back on him. And it pleased him to crush him. And yet God declares the sinful to bear the righteousness of the sinless one. There's an exchange. That's how the gospel is transferred. When a person has genuinely embraced the gospel, that's, that's the reality of his life. And of course, there are manifested results in his life. Verse 20, now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Back to verse 20. Now the law came in to increase the trespass. What in the world does that mean? Certainly the law does not call us to trespass more, the law does not encourage, or much less command us to sin. What does it mean that the law reveals or results in an increase of sin? 
Like I've illustrated this many times, I grew up in a small town in Missouri, and many of the intersections still don't to this day have any kind of yield sign or anything. You know, the law states you got to make eye contact, you got to communicate with each other so you don't destroy each other's vehicles when you come to that intersection at the same time. But as the city has grown, stop signs have gone up in certain places. And while every resident of Joplin, Missouri has known, who has a driver's license, what they need to do when the stop sign goes up, it's inevitably clear. I am being commanded to apply my brakes and bring my vehicle to an absolute stop. And if you read the manual, you sit there for three seconds, which I know all of you do every time you stop at a stop sign. That's what the law did. So when the law came in, when the stop sign went up, everyone who blew through that intersection was that much more accountable for and aware of his sin. And that's what happened when the Ten Commandments were applied, when the books of the Old Testament were established. The book of Leviticus, what in the world is that for? Primarily a call to holiness for God's people that they would be set apart with some particular laws that in some cases seem pretty strange, but if they would adhere to them, they would certainly be known to be set apart. In the New Testament era, we're simply called to holiness, to live in light of the commands of Scripture, to obey them, to do so by the power of Christ and for His glory. But having done this, again in verse 20, with God applying the law, sin increases all the more. What else increases all the more? Say it. The most wonderful word in our vocabulary, grace. Grace is applied to all our sin. If you confess your sins, he what? He's faithful and just to forgive them. There's got to be a confession involved. But let me tell you, sanctification involves more than just confession. I mean, you can cry out all day long, Lord, I keep doing this, I keep doing that, I'm so horrible, and never change. Sanctification involves a willingness to do what we'll look at in points 2 and 3. So verse 21, so that as sin reigned in death, and you know that, you know that, in your spiritual deadness, as Paul says in Ephesians 2, dead in your trespasses and sins, in that condition, what was most prevalent in your life and in your heart? Sin. And you might look at your life or someone else's life and say, you know what, I would never say that about him. Well, you know what that means? That means he was excellent at the sin of hypocrisy. He was a great actor. That's all that means. You know, when you dismiss the reality of what Scripture says about the sinner's condition because of that sinner's conduct most of the time, then you run the great danger of affirming a false conversion. Praise God for the clarity of Scripture that brings conviction over that and the power of the Spirit of God to produce regeneration and grant eternal life. So as grace then might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So this is the beauty that Jesus grants eternal life. And when he grants eternal life, he grants righteousness. There's the imputed righteousness, but there's also this love for personal holiness, a love for doing that which honors Christ, not just being known by better conduct, acts of service, 
but truly in the quietness of your own bedroom, your mind, in the privacy of your own brain, that you passionately hunger for the holiness of God. And when you display that, not only in your conduct and your speech, but in the privacy of your own sinful thoughts, you loathe that reality about that yet unredeemed humanity called the flesh. And what do we do about it? Point two, by grace, Jesus grants death to sin. Now, point two leads to point three, just like point one led to point two. You'll see this, I think, logical and literary progression from the mouth of Paul that as we see that Jesus grants eternal life, he grants death to sin. I'll go ahead and spill the beans on verse 3. He then grants new life with victory over sin. But let's look at point 2, starting, of course, with Romans 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Right? This is a, some call it a rhetorical question. I would call it a preemptive question. In other words, Paul knows people are going to ask this question, and people do. Maybe you've been this person. You certainly know people who would say, well, you know, nobody's perfect. How about this phrase? Better to ask what? Forgiveness than permission. Better to ask forgiveness than permission. The Bible calls that presumption. David, in his psalm of repentance, pleaded with God to protect him from presumptuous sins. Why? Because David was concerned about his spiritual condition and he knew that this reality about a person, that he lives in presumptuous sin, that he's perfectly willing to go headlong into sin and say, I know it's wrong. I know I shouldn't do it, but God will forgive me because he's a God of grace. That is not the grace of God. And the grace of God does not apply to the presumptuous sinful lifestyle. A believer can commit a presumptuous sin from time to time. But that pattern over a, a life where there's absolutely no willingness to go back and dredge up the reality of one's sinful condition and deal with it for what it was and let the blood of Christ cover it, what's his problem? He's trying to cover it himself, not with grace, but with his own renewed turning over a leaf. You know, he's trying to better himself. We've all experienced the utter futility of trying to do that. It's absolutely hopeless, isn't it? Romans 6 verse 1, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Listen to how he works this out. By no means. That's working it out. That's saying no. <laughs> no, don't consider that. Look at Romans 3, just that first little section. Not right now, but put it in your notes. Look at Romans 3 later. Paul explains there that the one who lives that way is yet condemned. Now we love Romans 8 verse 1 that tells us that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But Paul is saying there in that little section at the beginning of Romans 3 that there are those who are yet condemned. How do you know? Because they engage in presumptuous sin. That's the issue there. That's how you know. There are other ways, but that's as clear a way as the Scripture reveals by no means, of course, we don't continue in sin that grace may abound. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? And this is why we say point two, Jesus grants death 
to sin. Further in Romans sin, you see it three different times. You are no longer a slave to sin. You're a slave to righteousness, and it is an enjoyable slavery. You could call it the freedom of slavery to that which is good. You've been freed from death to Christ. You've been freed from death to righteousness. You've been freed from that hypocritical lifestyle that says, I do good things most of the time. I do a lot of good things. So what? I do this or that or the other thing, you know, here and there. You got to have a little fun. When Jesus applies the gospel to someone's life, he's done with that. He can no longer say, my good outweighs my bad, and that's how I know I'm a Christian. He can no longer live in that hypocrisy. He's dead to sin. Again, Paul asked it, he, he states it in the form of a question, do you not know? Because some people don't, right? Do you not know? If you think that it's okay to sin more so that you'll get more grace, he asks the question, do you not know that all of us have been baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death? You say, what does that mean? Point three is going to lay that out for us. Point three By grace, Jesus grants new life with victory over sin. So listen, you're not only saved from the condemnation that comes with sin. You're not only saved into eternal life, no longer condemned. You're not only saved from the ultimate results of sin. You're saved from the power of sin today. See, the person who lives with a passionate effort to work harder and harder and harder to cover his Sin is not resting in the reality that those who are in Christ have died to sin. Again, Paul sets this up with this question. Don't you know that if you've been baptized into Christ, you're baptized into his death? What does that mean? It means that in his death, when he atoned for sin, he applied the power of his sinless life to those for whom he died. Let's look at the results. Verse 4, we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. This has nothing to do with water baptism, except for the fact that water baptism illustrates this. So what am I going to say when I get baptized? Just read this passage if you want to. What am I going to say to the church when I get baptized? You're being disobedient to Christ if you're in Christ and you haven't been baptized by immersion since that conversion. So what are you going to say? Read this passage and praise God for how he has implemented it in your life. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk, listen to this, in what? Newness of life. Again, that ought to be one of the favorite phrases in your vocabulary. Walking in newness of life. That means it's such a real steady walk. Like you heard this morning from Scotty that you wouldn't continue to walk in darkness. Or when you find yourself attempting to walk in darkness and hide your sin, you expose it to the light. You don't trust and wait and hope that nobody else shines a light on it. You shine a light on it. Years ago, when, and I've shared this with you a number of times, when my life was beginning to be exposed as a double life that I, in fact, was a dead man, a whitewashed tomb full of dead men's bones, 
Someone asked me, did you blow the whistle on yourself? And tragically, I had to say no, someone else did. And so it's been a practice of my life to blow the whistle on myself. I want that. I want that. Because I have found, as you know, not only from Scripture, but in your own life, that the beauty and the glory and the power of the blood of Christ is not only efficacious, it is infinitely more efficacious than your efforts to cover your sin. You can cover it for a while, but eventually your mouth exposes the reality of your heart. Out of the mouth speaks the heart. Your mouth and your life reveal that. And listen, if you've developed the practice of resisting those efforts of others to address those things about you, be warned, you're trying to cover your sin rather than trusting Christ to have covered your sin. But we walk in newness of life as the certain result of the glory of the Father being applied in the death of Christ, we would certainly walk in that newness of life with a hunger for righteousness. Verse 5. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Say, what does that mean? Well, what was his resurrection like? What was his resurrection like? It was a literal death and a literal resurrection. See, that's why when we ask for a testimony, that's what we're looking for. We're looking for that change. Now, Christ had no sin in his life, so your resurrection is not similar to his in that way, but apply it insofar as it applies. Apply it as Paul says in Ephesians 2, dead in your trespasses and sins, and then what? Made alive. The object of Christ's work of making dead people alive. We've been united with him in his death. We've already worked through that. That means you've died to the power of sin. Sin no longer has dominion over you, as Paul later says in this chapter. You're dead to it. You're no longer dead to Christ. You're dead to sin. You are no longer alive to sin. You are alive to Christ. Verse 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. I was watching a thing on the death of JFK the other night, and a psychologist has determined that John F. Kennedy, in his multiple adulterous relationships, had an illness. He had a sexual addiction, and that was why he had all those relationships. And this is what we're hearing more and more, that a person who shows himself to be massively committed to unrepentant sin, while it defies the words of John in 1 John that says, while you practice sin, you are not born of God. It's kind of clear. John's pretty clear. While it defies that, Rather than trusting what Scripture has said, they trust in their experience and they trust in what psychologists say because it makes them feel better about their sin. The Bible does nothing to make you feel better about your sin except for the fact that Christ legitimately atoned for it. He legitimately provided satisfaction to the Father. He legitimately propitiated your sins. He satisfied the Father with regard to your sin if, in fact, your life reveals 
victory over sin. So you're no longer enslaved to sin. Verse 7, for one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you, and this is where Paul gets real specific with a mandate, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now, the difference between the Greek mindset about this term versus the English mindset. When you and I hear the word consider, what do we think? We think someone's encouraging us to take a little time and you know, think it through. It's not what this means. It's the same thing in Colossians 3. Consider your earthly members to be dead. And if you have the ESV, it translates it differently and more accurately and says, put to death. That's the idea. Think of your sinful condition as dead. Do something about it internally. Begin to think rightly about the holiness of God, the atonement of Christ on the cross, and the reality that in every sin you're abandoning and really rejecting the gospel. Believers do that every time they sin. Unbelievers do that as a lifestyle. But believers ought to be so committed to the power of God's glory in edifying and strengthening one another for evangelism, but also being willing to tell the truth about how evangelism works. Romans 1.17, faith unto faith. We ought to be so committed to that. And the believer is, as he matures, he becomes increasingly willing to talk about and confess his own sin in the right contexts. He's willing to confess it and really, really forsake it. And that is how it works. As you remember from John 8, Jesus has made it so clear. His disciples abide in his word. So well, what does that mean? That means you clutch his word, you cling to his word. Rather than whitewashing his word based on your experience, some difficulty that you had or something that you endured as a child or even as an adult, rather you're willing to say, I'm going to obey the commands of Scripture uh, even may, and maybe even especially the difficult ones. John Owen said it well, many of you may have heard it, be killing sin or it will be killing you. And you might not even know it or maybe you don't know the extent of it as it is killing you, but for the false convert, that death in which he already lives is increasingly on display the more he or she is subject to true believers that are killing their sin, the more it becomes obvious to those around him or her. So the harder he fights to cover his sin, give it up if that's you. Trust in the grace of God, not your own works, that Jesus, in fact, grants eternal life, and when he does, he grants death to sin, that it no longer has power over you, it no longer has dominion in your life, but he also grants victory over that sin so that the practice of your life is, in fact, newness 
of life. Father, we rejoice in the testimonies we've heard this morning. I think of the words of John Calvin who said, if you want to be saved, believe in the Lord Jesus. Believe in the Lord Jesus. Lord, help us to repent of where we have failed to believe in the Lord Jesus and to practice that in our speech and in our conduct. We ask that you would do an increasing work in us, producing hatred for sin, sins for which Christ died, sins which Christ propitiated, that he satisfied your wrath with regard to the condemnation that we have earned and yet deserve and have, has granted to us the reward of eternal life in heaven, reaping the benefits of his deserved inheritance while he, in fact, took on our punishment. We rejoice in his resurrection, which makes certain the resurrection of those who are in him, in his death, in his resurrection, and are proven to be so by walking in newness of life. We ask this in his name. Amen.